family room um, when little Rebecca came scampering in, um, running around the corner, you know, looked up at us and said, Mommy, does my shirt smell? And Mommy, you know, because we're, we're in this process now of teaching her, you know, the ancient tradition known as the sniff test, right? You guys know the sniff test. You smell your clothes. If they smell good, keep them. If they stink, you put them in the laundry, right? Well, sure enough, Jerry smells the shirt and immediately says, yes, that is a stinky, stinky shirt. Take it off. So, um, so she takes off the shirt and goes um, running off and throws it in the laundry bin. Well, then she heads into her room, and then she's just kind of quiet for a few minutes. We hear some noises going on. Um, but then we hear the announcement. Mommy, Daddy, I'm coming back. And whenever she makes her announcement, you know, of re-entry into the room, we know that there is a grand entrance awaiting us. And so we need to stop whatever we're doing and just kind of, you know, acknowledge her. And so, of course, she walks in like a princess, wearing her bright pink Barbie princess dress that she just got the other day, looking so beautiful. She walks in, she does her twirl, you know, and we're, of course, like, ooh, so beautiful, Rebecca. And, you know, and, and we waited until after the excitement was over to actually let her know that her dress was on backwards. Um, but, um, but that's okay, right? She's a kid. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's our daughter. But I want to kind of go back real quick to that idea of the, the sniff test, okay, the sniff test. Now, we all do it to some degree, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. And, and furthermore, all of us, at some point, have stinky clothes, right? I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, you have stinky clothes. Cologne and deodorant only go so far, am I right? And so we all, we all start to smell after all. We all have to, we have to put on new clothes. And, and we all love that feeling right after we clean off and put on a new set of clothes, how good that feels. Well, reflecting on that just led me to this idea of what it is as Christians that we're called to do, that every day we're called to put on something new, right? Scripture tells us that we're called to put on our new identity, as Al mentioned earlier. We're called to put on our new identity. What is this identity that we're called to put on? Um, this leads us to our big question for the day, um, because, because as Christians, we're called to put on Christ, is what Scripture says. We're called to put on the very identity of Christ. And so our big question for today is simply this, how do we put on our new identity in Christ? In other words, how do we get from where we are in our character, in our heart, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our relationships, to where Christ is in his character, in his thoughts, in his actions, in his relationships? How do we bridge that gap? And so in our text today, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, first of all, how we go about putting on our new identity in Christ. Secondly, we're going to see what that looks like practically. And third, we're going to see how it is that we are able to put on our new identity in Christ. And so we're going to answer those three questions. And so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have your Bible with you, there are Bibles in the aisles. And so just go ahead and um, pass them down to anybody who might need one. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Ephesians chapter 4, and the first question we're going to ask is, is, is specifically this regarding how we put on our new identity, is this. What must we do before we put on our new identity in Christ? What is the necessary first step prior to being clothed in Christ's identity, in his identity. And so we'll see in the first main point, and it's there in your bulletin notes, that the first main point is this, that we first remove our old sin habits, and then put on our new identity in Christ. And so that's the first point. We first remove our old sin habits, and then put on our new identity in Christ. 
That is, we are to put off our old sinful identity before we put on Christ's identity. And so read with me, um, there in verse 22, Paul's going to kind of tease out what this means, what this looks like. And so he starts off in 22 saying, you were taught, this is, this is him speaking to the church in Ephesus, so speaking to Christians, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is what? Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What is this old self and new self Paul is talking about? Let's start with the old self. It's, it's our former way of life. Um, it, it says that, you know, we're created um, as a human being, and that all of us as humans, we have kind of a core identity to who we are. The Bible refers to this as our heart. It's, it's the very core of who we are. That's our identity. That's us. That's our self. Okay, and before we were a Christian, we had a self, and after we were a Christian, we have a self. But that self in us has changed. And so what it is, is it's, it's all about the fall. You see, we were created in the image of God. It says we were created in true righteousness and holiness, and yet we were born fallen. And so there's a tension here. There's a paradox here. You see, what the fall has done is it's shifted everything we know about life. It's, it's brought sin into the world. It's really what it's done. And, and ultimately, for us today, it's given us... It's given us two particular um, effects. And the first effect of sin is that we are all now in need of a Savior. Okay, we're all in need of a Savior. And that's something that as Christians, it's at the very core of our belief, right? We believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In fact, the separation of our sin from God is what brought us to this place. If you look at verse 18, just prior, Paul says, in regards to those who haven't yet accepted Jesus... He describes them and says that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. See, they're separated from God. And so the first consequence of sin is that we need a Savior, that we're separated from God. The only way to get to God is through a Savior. Well, here's the second consequence of sin that we're going to really sit with today, and that's the idea of our sin nature, that we've now been born into a world fallen, sinful, and we have a sin nature. What does that mean? Essentially, it means that we're prone to sin. That our default is to sin. We can't not sin. It, it says, it goes on to say in verse 19, uh, just going back again a few verses, just describing this, this person who is born into sin, which we, which we all were. It says in verse 19 that having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Right? And so, and so we look back at our former life before we were Christian, and we would say, yeah, I see that in our lives. But, but let's, let's look for a second at what that really means. Let's tease that out. In fact, there was a, uh, there was a study done I want to share with you guys. Um, it was by a behavioral scientist and Duke professor. His name was Dan Airely, and he did this massive study with over 30,000 people Right? And here's what he did. He went to different college campuses. And he would take groups of people and he would say, hey, I'll, get you, I'll give you $10 for 10 minutes of your time. We're going to do a little study. And of course, every poor college student says yes to that, right? So they all come in and what they do is they sit down, just, in, just like this, but they have desks in front of them and they take a test. There's 10 questions on this test and it's simply, however many questions you get right, you get a dollar for every right answer. And so they can get up to $10. Well, here's how it works. They, they take the test and at the end of the test, they don't turn their papers in. They grade it themselves. It's self-graded. But it gets better than that. It's self-graded, and then they walk to the back of the classroom. They put the paper into a paper shredder, 
Then they walk back up to the front and announce to the proctor what their test score was. In other words, they're the only ones in the whole wide world who know what their score was. <laughs> or were they? The paper shredder machine was rigged. So, actually, it never got shredded. They went back and saw every one of those test answers in regards to what the person said they got and what they actually got. Very fascinating study. Here's essentially what happened. In, in, in 30,000 people, right? We, in 30,000 people, believe it or not, there were only 12 big cheaters. 12 people who didn't do, didn't do so hard on the test, but they, they said that they did much better, right? So they lied on like five or more questions. There's only 12 people that did that out of 30,000 people. However, there were 18,000 small cheaters. <laughs> Those who maybe some of us can relate to that just, you know, maybe just added one or two more right answers than they really got. Well, here's how it breaks down. Just so you can see the, the big picture of this. How much, in new terms of money, how much did the big cheaters steal? They actually only stole about $360, which is a lot of money, but $360, in comparison to the small cheaters who actually stole $36,000. Interesting, isn't it? And so, in the, this test was done all over the world. It was done in, in uh, US, Western Europe, Turkey, Israel, China, many other countries, all, all around the world, just to make the point, hey, listen, we're all doing this together. We're all cheating. But we, the, the, the point of this was to see rationalization. We all rationalize our sin. We all are going are to say, well, he, here's the reason I did this, right? But it's fascinating because this is, this is us, right? This is, this is what we'd see as Christians. This is our old self. This is us before Christ, right? And, and, and giving ourselves, it says, to, every, you know, to sensuality, to indulge in every kind of impurity, we're full of greed. That's what the scripture says. We're full of greed. We're unclean. Um, we, we, we need to experience our, our, our new self, is what, is what Scripture is leading us to. And so, so with that, let's put on hold the old self, and let's look at the new self. What does the new self say? Because we don't like the old self. The old self is not very fun to talk about. The new self is cool, because the new self says that we've been given a new identity, that at the very core of us, we're no longer alone, that we have God within us. That we were born alone, but now that we have God within us, we have a different identity. And here's what it is. And Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. It's the idea that we've actually been given the righteousness of Christ. And what that means is that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And that's good news, right? When God looks at us, and not only has he forgiven us all our sins, he's wiped us clean, but he's also, he's also given us the righteousness of Christ. And so we have now within us um, Jesus' holiness, his his perfection, all that, he, all that we saw Jesus do here on earth and walk and live in perfect obedience, that is within us now. That capacity is within us. Well, then the inevitable question is, well, if we've been given the righteousness of Christ, if our identity is in Christ, then why do we still sin? Why do we still sin? You see, I thought that once we get cleansed, once we accept Jesus, that it says that our sins have been washed away and that we live a new life, um, but we see this, this old self kind of creeping back in, right? And I don't know about you, but I see it every single day. It's just always kind of coming back. And here's how I've, I've heard it explained, and I think this helps. It's to give kind of a word to it. It's these, what we talked about in our first main point here, um, to remove our old sin habits. It's these sin habits that we've formed, right? That Paul says, in your former way of living, right? So for some of us, that former way of living, maybe we accepted Christ when we were really young, and it was a smaller form of way. Some of us, we accepted Christ when we were a little older. So it's a, it's a bigger period. But regardless, we all have our former way of living. 
It's, this, it's, this, it's these habits that are formed over time that are brought in to our relationship with God. And another, another phrase I like to hear is, is called uh, sin residue. Okay? It's kind of this, this residue that's, that's kind of stayed with us over time. Um, I love washing my car. That's one of those things I just enjoy to get out, get the hose, and just scrub it down and have it see it shining afterwards. That's just fun. That's satisfying to me. But one thing I hate doing is washing my rims. I mean, if you've ever washed your rims before, there's all these dumb little pieces and parts and components. You can never quite get your, you know, you can never clean it out well. And I always thought that it was just a bunch of dirt that got clogged in there. But I learned one day that that's not dirt. In fact, do you guys know what it is? It's, it's, all the guys, yeah, I know what it is. <laughs> brake pad dust, okay? So for those of you who are interested in learning more about cars, brake pad dust, that's what it is. So I hate brake pad dust because it makes my life so much more complicated. The washing the car part's easy. It's getting into all the little grooves, cleaning out the brake pad dust. Now, we know what the brake pad dust is from. It's from the brake pads. Every time you step on the brake, it's shooting out more of that dust into your tires, into your rims, and making it dirty. You have to wash, you have to wash it again. Well, in the same way that our, our brake pad dust, the, the residue, is coming from the brake pads, so our sin residue is coming from our former way of living. And, and it kind of carries in, right? And so there's this tension that we have of, of scriptures. Being, you know, we're being told that we have put off the old self. That in Romans 6 it talks about that we've died to our old self. That we've died to the power of sin. And then it says here clearly that we're, we're, we have a new self, and we're putting that on. It says in Philippians that we've been given a new self. We have righteousness now in Christ. And yet, we still sin. And so there's this kind of this, this struggle we have that we have to accept as Christians, that daily we are to put off our old self and then put on our new self. We can't put on our new self until we take off our old self. Kind of like my daughter, right? She should take off her old dirty clothes and then put on the new dress. And so that's kind of how it is for us today. And so as we move forward out of the message, we're going to see um, in the next portion of Scripture kind of how that plays out practically so we can kind of put some, some um, yes, a little more meat to the, to the words that we're using here. So, so the first point we see is that we first remove our old sin habits and then we put on our new identity in Christ. And so secondly, we're going to ask, how do we recognize our sin habits so that we can replace them with Christ's identity? So in other words, how do we, be, how do we begin to replace our old self with our new self? How do we identify these, these sin habits, the sin residue in our life? Well, in order to recognize our sin habits, and here's the second point, we must take a moral inventory of our hearts. A moral inventory of our hearts. That is, we begin to replace our old self with our new self through an honest searching of our souls. And so before we read the text here, I just want to kind of give a short intro to this portion in saying this idea, what does it mean to take a moral inventory, to, to kind of open our hearts and search our souls? This is very much in alignment with what we see in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 139 stands out the clearest to me. We see at the end of the Psalm there, um, uh, the Psalmist David saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart, Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love that verse. Um, search me, O oh God. It's kind of like just open yourself before God and just let him kind of take the x-ray through and, and see what's going on and be open to him in that. It's important to know that, that this can be done in two ways. The first way can be done as we would, we would kind of maybe hesitantly think, yeah, is kind of out of guilt, right? You kind of feel guilty. Okay, God, let's look in my heart, but we're going to see a lot of you know, nasty things going on in there. We're going to see my old sin habits. And that's, quite frankly, very uncomfortable. 
Um, but we can't forget that when we're doing this, we already have our new identity in Christ. That God already sees us as Jesus. That we already have that core identity of us as a whole person with the Holy Spirit within us. And so, so we don't open our hearts to God out of guilt and shame and out of, out of um, yeah, kind of a self-loathing, but out of a place of freedom and saying, God, you already love me, you already accept me, and so in light of that, search me and know my heart. And so, so we're going to see in this, in this passage um, the context that Paul is preaching here is in regards to the church context. He's all about church unity, especially in Ephesians chapter 4. He's all about church unity, and that's what we're seeing here today. So as these scriptures play out, we're going to see all the context of them taking place in the church. I think it'd be great actually to, to apply them directly into our small group scenarios, small group situations, um, where I see a lot of what Paul's speaking of taking place in everyday life for us. Um, so most of us here are in small groups, some of us aren't, um, and that's okay. Um, but if, if you're newer here, if you're not a part of a small group, we would encourage you to, to talk to myself or Pastor Jerry about um, what that could look like, because we'd love to get us all connected to be able to be in the um, smaller, more intimate um, places of community. Um, so let's go on. Before I go on, sorry, is this mic fuzzy? I hear this, like, staticky. Is it? Oh, we're good? Okay, just me. <laughs> okay, um, so with that said, verse 25, verse 25. This talks about truth-telling, truth-telling. And so verse 25, talking about putting off falsehood and speaking truthfully. Here we go. It says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. There it is again, right? He's talking about the church, that we're all members of one body of Christ. And so what is he telling us to do? He's calling us to put off lying and to put on truth-telling. And so what does this look like for us today? What does it look like to, to put off lying and put on truth-telling? Well, I don't think we necessarily go around, you know, per se, lying to one another's you know, faces. We don't necessarily do that. But the truth-telling part of it, I think, helps lead us into this. And I think what it is is this, is maybe, whether it's in our small groups or on a Sunday morning, the idea that we, we come and we bring ourselves um, to the church body, um, but we don't bring our entire selves. We're not entirely real. We're not entirely honest. Um, we're not entirely owning who we are in Christ, which is that we are, we are seen as, as Christ's righteousness. And in that, then I can be honest about my old sin habits and about who I am and how I mess up and how life is messy. Um, my wife and I are part of a small group we started this year, and we've been so blessed um, because we feel like we can enter into that community as ourselves. We can come and bring ourselves, and we could be real. Um, it takes, though, a group that's that's open to that idea of being real and being genuine in order for someone else to come into the group feeling that. And that's very much so what we've experienced, and it's been a huge blessing. Um, and so that's kind of what we see here in this first point is, is truth-telling. How can we, as, as the body of Christ, come together and, and speak truthfully to one another, for we are all members of one body? And so now let's move down to the, the, the next verse, which actually goes into anger. And now again, this is just a kind of a moral inventory. For some of these, some of us are going to say, yeah, that's me. For some of us, no, not so much. That's okay. Um, just see which one or two of these stick the most for you. And this is kind of what we do, taking a moral inventory of our, of our sin habits. And so verse 26, it starts by saying, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Okay, now what's happening here? Because I want to know about anger. Is anger good? Is anger bad? Um, it's hard to pin down in Scripture, isn't it? Um, in fact, um, other translations, the ESV doesn't say in your anger. It says, be angry and do not sin. Some of your Bibles might say that. Be angry. It actually looks like a command to be angry and yet do not sin. 
Well, there's different translations that, that lean towards one way or the other. And, and here's kind of what I found to be the universal rule for anger across the board, is that anger is going to be inevitable. We are going to, as humans in a fallen world, experience anger. The question the Bible's asking is, what do we do with that anger? Okay? And so here it gives us three choices, three actually areas that it would call us to put off regarding anger and our reaction with it. And here are the three things. The first is to put off sinning while you are angry. To put off sinning. The second is to put off letting the sun go down while you are angry. And then the third is to put off giving the devil a foothold while you are angry. And so let's kind of look at those real quick. So sinning. <clears throat> Regarding the first main point, it's, um, the truth is that we're more susceptible to sin when we're angry. And I know this seems obvious, right? But to really just kind of think about that for a second, we're, we're more likely to sin when we are angry than when we're not. Perfect example. Last week we had our Easter lunch right out here and we were all eating together and um, Rebecca, I love talking about her, she's sitting next to me on the chair, we're eating lunch together and then we're done with our lunch and after lunch, of course, you get dessert. And so I got my cupcake there and uh, we're going to share it, of course, um, not too many sweets, that's what my wife says. So we're going to share it. So then I'm, so I'm going to take my bite. Well, as I'm going to take my bite, she out of nowhere reaches up and just knocks my cupcake out of my hand. And, and I, it just fell on the table. And I look at her, I look at the cupcake, I look back at her, I was like, Rebecca, what's up? And now, fortunately, I was surrounded by my loving church family, right? And so that helped with my accountability, you know, because it made it a lot easier to not sin in my anger. Um, however, had we have been alone at home, I probably wouldn't have been as sweet and nice and everything else. Um, but it's, it's, it's that, right? It's those moments in life where it just catch us off guard and just something triggers something in us and we get angry. And we all do it, you know, to some degree. Uh, we all get angry. And so the, the, the passage here is just saying, hey, heads up, you're going to get angry in life. Be prepared for that. And when you are angry, just check that you're not sinning in your anger. In other words, maybe use the advice from the first verse, right? Speaking the truth. Maybe it's better to just go and talk to that person and just be honest about how it is that they hurt you in that. Maybe that's in the, the, again, the church small group context, somebody here at church, um, maybe it's a family member or friend, um, but speaking the truth, of course, speaking the truth in love, telling them, you know, how that hurts you. So, so there we go. So there's the first part of, of not, you know, sinning in our anger. Secondly, we see don't let the sun go down. Um, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And so this is, this is kind of a way of saying, you know, at, at some point, deal with it. Don't let anger go on and on and on. Um, at some point, deal with your anger. Um, sometimes people translate this into, you know, the context of a married couple and, you know, don't go to bed without resolving the conflict kind of thing. Um, and I think, there's, I think there's some truth to that, but I think we shouldn't be, you know, put too much weight onto that regarding this particular passage. Um, that's how I am. I love resolving conflicts before I um, go to bed with Jerry. Um, Jerry, on the other hand, is totally fine with just, like, knocking out just like that and going to sleep and, you know, she can sleep, fall asleep on the, you know, just like that. I hate that because I can't do that. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's the side thing. So, so, so don't let the sun go down your anger. That, it's to say, like, you know, you know stop it eventually. Deal with it. And, and here's what's important, and, and I've found this. Um, with anger, we oftentimes don't want to deal with it. And I've heard it said that, that anger, if it's not dealt with, almost, like, internalized, if anger is just internalized, anger turned inwards is depression. So depression is anger turned inwards. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? So again, it's not to say that we go out and we just let everybody know that we're angry. It's, I think we deal with it. Maybe we go on a walk, go on a bike ride, go to the gym. You know, maybe we need to get out some of that, but then eventually deal with it, you know, with the person that we have um, 
anger towards. And then the last, the last scenario we see regarding anger is with the devil. And, and that's, again, in the context of the church community. Um, the devil, he, he, you know, he's moving around like a roaring lion trying to devour um, us. And his whole, his whole aim is to tear down the church. And so if we give the devil a foothold in our anger, if we sin in our anger, he has that much more space to then take away the unity of the body, which is what we're striving for here. And so we see those three areas regarding anger. Let's, let's move on down to verse 30, actually. And, and Paul here, he takes a break from these different um, uh, areas of putting off and putting on to, to make an important kind of like note that we need to stop and, and, and recognize. And he says in verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, he's talking about your old self, right? He's talking about putting off your old self, putting on your new self. He's saying, don't let your old self live in such a way that you are grieving the Spirit of God. Because we see in all these different examples prior to this, uh, how our old self, how our sin habits can hurt the body of Christ, can hurt God's church. Well, now Paul is saying that our old sin habits can actually hurt God. We can grieve God. Um, to grieve, it's to, it's to cause emotional distress, to vex, irritate, to offend, or insult. Um, to tear down a brother or sister rather than to build him up is actually to distress and grieve God. And so it's important for us to just take note of the fact that we're not just hurting one another in our, in our sin, uh, but that we really are causing God to grieve in that. And so with that said, he continues on into verse 31, and he says in verse 31 gives this long list of all these different uh, vices or these different areas of our sin habits, of our sin residue. And he talks about get rid of all bitterness, all rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now the NIV, most of us here have the NIV, that's what these Bibles are here. It translates it, um, get rid of. Um, It sounds like something that you just go and do, right? You just go and will it. You just get rid of the old self and put on the new self. Actually, other translations, the ESV, again, uh, referencing to this one, I like the translation they use here because it actually says, not get rid of all bitterness, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and and clamor and slander be be put away from you along with all malice. You catch the difference? The first is active, the second is passive. The second is passive, and it's the idea that we can't, again, just will away our sin, right? Anger, be gone. That doesn't work, right? We can't just speak something and it happens. Otherwise, none of us would sin because we would have all done that a long time ago, right? It doesn't happen like that. This is an ongoing process that we see that we are partnering with God's Spirit who is in us for Him to do His work within us, right? Kind of the idea that we can water and, and, and tend, but ultimately God is the one causing the growth. And it's the same idea here. So I like the translation that let it be put off. You know, that be, um, have it be put away. That you're working with the Spirit to have this taken off. And so we see the, 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 the list that we have here of all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Um, we put away along with all malice. Um, there's actually a shift taking place here if you, if you haven't caught it. Um, the bitterness and wrath is more on the internal side, what's taking place inside. And then moving along to anger, clamor, slander, and malice, that moves, it shifts outwardly. And so we see, for instance, bitterness, that starts in the heart. It starts in the heart, and as we feed bitterness, that grows into wrath, which is essentially kind of an intensified hatred towards others. It sounds like a very harsh word, but I wonder how much of us have experienced wrath towards others in our lives. And then we spoke of anger earlier, right? Here it comes up again. And here Paul warns again of what anger can lead to. 
kind of the, the, the anger is kind of the gateway from our internal world going into our external world, right? Because then it flows from there into clamor, slander, malice. There's all these different words he uses, but these, these words have this emphasis of almost like yelling and shouting, right? Clamor and slander. It's, it's shouting with the intentions of cutting someone else down. And malice, which is kind of the, the end of it all, which is this, this hatred for someone else that's not only felt, but it's acted upon. It's deep. And it's being lived out. And, and so, now these are some heavy words for us today. And, and I don't think, I don't personally see, right, these things happening in our church context all the time. Um, I think maybe we're more, you know, on the internal side of experiencing some of these things on the inside. And, um, and perhaps maybe some of these get exposed more in, in the home, right? Because I see some of these happening in my home. And um, particularly with me, you know, not being as gentle and tender as I could be. And in fact, that's right where Paul's heading to. That's right where Paul's heading to because he says, rather than living these ways, let's put that off. And instead, it says in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It says to be kind and compassionate. That word compassionate, it has this meaning of tender-hearted. It's only used one other time in scriptures for a very similar feel. It's, it's, it's a tender-heartedness that we ought to have as Christians, as brothers and sisters of Christ, towards one another. It's this, this gentle tender-heartedness of truly caring for them, which, by the way, then leads right into forgiveness. It says, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Tender-heartedness ought to lead us into forgiveness. As we're in our small groups and we're, and we're compassionate and tender-hearted towards one another in our group, we have to experience a desire to, to forgive, right? When others make us angry, when others um, hurt us or cause us to feel different things, we ought to desire to forgive one another as Christ forgave us. Because at the end of all this, God is the standard, right? It says that it, it, uh, forgive one another as Christ forgave you. And when we're talking about living out our new self, right? We, we don't just kind of choose what we want to be and what we don't want to be. No, we look at Christ and we say, Christ, who are you and what are you doing? What did you do? Okay, you forgave, now I'm called to forgive. And now, and now Christ is the standard. God is the standard. God's nature is the standard, which we're going through, as a side note, apologetics with our youth. We're going through this understanding of our faith and, um, and, and being able to defend it and understand it. And it's, we're going to be eventually be getting into morality um, and how do we get you know, ethics and what is right and wrong, those kind of things. Um, Here's a little uh, answer for the youth. It's God's character. That's our standard, okay? So there you go. God's character is our standard for morality. That's how we know what is right and wrong. Um, and, and it's really interesting to, to hear that discussion be teased out from Christians and atheists and others. Um, but, but according to Scripture and, and what we see play out, that's the only real way to um, explain it. But that's, that's, sorry, that's a side note. We had a long discussion on apologetics last night, and I'm all excited about it. But um, I just wanted to share that. Let's, let's like, review now our first two main points um, and then we'll move on to our third. So we see in our first point that we are first to remove our old sin habits and then put on our new identity in Christ. So that is that we put off our old identity, our old sinful identity, we put on Christ's identity. And then secondly, that in order to recognize our sin habits, we must take a moral inventory of our heart. And that's kind of like going through these scriptures here that we saw, right? And you can do this with any, with any passage. Just go through and just kind of say, God, how is this text affecting me? The word of God is living and active. And so you can encounter God's word and let it speak to you. Let it speak to your heart. And so kind of take a moral searching inventory of your heart, opening to God and saying, God, where are these sin habits I need to take off so that I can put on your identity? And now, thirdly, we ask the question, how are we able 
to replace sin habits with Christ's identity, right? Not how do we do it, but how are we able? What gives us the ability to put off and put on our new self? We'll see here in our third point that we are able to live out Christ's identity because our Heavenly Father loves us dearly. We have the ability to remove the old self and put on the new self because we are God's beloved children. Let's now flip over to uh, the chapter 5, verse 1. And just, so it's basically just carrying right on through um, from our last verse. 5, verse 1, and it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we see, follow God's example, therefore, right? That therefore is setting us up. It's saying everything we just talked about, right? All these sin habits, anger, malice, greed, all these different things. Therefore, in light of that, follow God's example. And then it goes on to say, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Now, if the verse just said, follow God's example and walk in the way of love, well, we would be pretty hard-pressed to know how to do that. But it says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. That's kind of the secret. That's the underlying truth of how we are able to put on the new self by recognizing that God dearly loves us, that God's with us, that he's for us. Sometimes we can get caught up in this sin discussion and just kind of think very lowly of ourselves and just kind of get hard on ourselves, but more so think that God isn't happy with us either, that God is not content with how we are. Sin is no surprise to God. He sees us sin every day. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's part of this whole story that he's been doing of redemption, is saying, I get it, I know it. It's a struggle, and I'm here with you. It says that he dearly loves us as children. In other words, he's our heavenly father. And so we are all dearly loved children. If we've accepted Christ, and if we have a relationship with God, he is our father. And so that's kind of where this whole discussion of putting off the old self and putting on the new self really ought to begin, is with the foundation that we are loved by God. Um, I want to share a little bit about my personal story. Um, I started out at Talbot when I first came out here to California from Hawaii over five years ago, and I went through this program um, called uh, Spiritual Formations, and that was essentially kind of my major um, in the master's program that I was in. And the spiritual formations program kind of coincided with the typical seminary experience, where seminary is very much about teaching, you know, the basic foundations of the Bible, going back to the original Hebrew and Greek, looking at church history, and moving into the each specific book of the Bible, really getting a solid um, knowledge and understanding of the Bible. Well, that's what seminary does. Uh, spiritual formations came alongside that and said, yeah, that's good, and we need that. We need to understand God's word, but we also need to experience it in our hearts. We need to really know and understand what's going on. Really, spiritual formations, this program I was in, was all about what we're talking about today, about putting off the old self, putting on the new, about becoming like Christ. There's this big word called sanctification, and for those of us who've heard that word before, it's the idea of becoming more like Christ. That's really what it comes down to. Well, my experience there was actually um, one of the most challenging experiences in my life. Um, we started off in a 40-person cohort, so it was just a large group of us that went into this program together. 
And in that time, we got to share our stories. We got to stand up in front of the whole class and do what was called family sculptures, where we had different people from our group come and act as different people in our family to be able to show to the rest of the group kind of our upbringing, where we came from, who we are, kind of hearing our story from the very beginning so that we could really have this sense of understanding and intimacy of, of each person as we journeyed together on this, on this um, experience. We had that. We also broke up into smaller groups where we got to share that much more um, intimately about our journeys and, and what God has been doing in our lives. Um, uh, I was, we were all expected to meet with the spiritual director once a month, and that was somebody that we met with that we could essentially share our relationship with God, our, our, what we experienced with God. The question that was asked typically in a spiritual direction setting was, what is God doing in your life, and how are you responding to that? What is God doing in your life, and how are you responding to that? And it essentially gives you, it's, you meet once a month, and it gives you the space for one hour each month to just sit and just focus on what is God doing in my life. If only we all got to experience that. I, I highly recommend it. In fact, I even have all of our adult leaders overseeing our youth connected up now with spiritual directors so that they can go and do that very thing, just to sit and just process um, their relationship with God. And so that was part of my experience. We also were required to meet with a Christian therapist for a number of sessions um, for about six months. And in fact, I, before that experience, thought therapy and all that stuff was kind of out there and kind of strange. Um, now I highly recommend it to anybody, and I would love to go back and do it again um, when I get more money, because I think it's such a healthy experience um, to be able to just go through with someone else who's trained and really just kind of helping you understand who you are. Again, kind of your past and, and your life. Well, anyway, I just kind of share all these things to say there's all these different components to my experience through this school. They even had us go on different retreats. Um, one of which was the summer before last, I went on a three-week solitude retreat. And it was at that retreat that I got to experience something I've never experienced before. It's kind of at the end of this whole long, messy journey that I had through this program. And it was really painful and really challenging at times. Um, but at the end of that retreat, I got to experience something. I got to experience God. And I got to experience myself. And I got to experience God as a person. I got to experience him in, in a way that I never really have before. I think before that, my prayer life was a lot more kind of of this, um, this, this thought life of just kind of imagining God and, and not really being able to connect with him in a very relational way. And on that retreat, I mean, I was separated from everything. I didn't have my phone. I couldn't even bring books with me to read other than the Bible. I had nothing. And I, and I really eventually got to my, 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 the bitter end of it all, and it, all I had left was God. Um, and, and it was a really, <laughs> again, challenging experience, but... If I could, I would go back and do it again, because I got to experience God. I got to experience his love for me. There was one day, this was up in Washington, there was one day where I was sitting on the back porch, and it was just a cloudy, overcast day. No surprise, right? Um, sorry, Amy. Um, she's from Washington. Um, it's normally cloudy up there. Well, all of a sudden, in the midst of this darkness, right where I was sitting, the sky broke through, and the sun was shining literally right on me. And that was just this moment where I just kind of broke down, and I knew that was God speaking to me. And, and, and from that point on, I've just had this different, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's just kind of this different experience with God. And I know for all of us, we're all on these different journeys, and some of us have, have been way beyond anything like that. And you've got to experience God in this intimate place where you know without a shadow of a doubt that he loves you. And for some of us, we're, we're still wanting that. And, and we're all in different places on our journey. I, I, I think what, what I have resolved is that there is no end to this journey of experiencing God's love. In fact, Paul makes that clear a chapter prior. In, in chapter 3, when he says, as he's praying for the church in Ephesus, he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power 
together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's kind of this picture of God's love being immeasurable, that it just kind of shoots out in every direction, and you can't capture it. And there's no containing it. There's this simple, this, this idea of just experiencing it and being with God in it. And that's, I think, what this point is really all about, right? As dearly loved children, is to recognize that that's who we are at the end of the day. We're loved by God. And then all this sin stuff kind of plays an effect after that. In fact, I'm going to be so bold to say that as Christians, our focus isn't actually becoming like Christ. Which has kind of been the whole focus of this message, right? But our focus isn't to become like Christ. Our focus is to accept the reality that in God's eyes, that we already have the righteousness of Christ. That our focus is a living out of what we already have. A living out of the fact that we are already deeply loved by the Father. And that as we live in this reality, we can become like Christ. And so we still must, you know, practice these spiritual disciplines and practice this putting off and putting on. That's part of our our everyday regimen. That's part of what we are called to do as Christians. But what we are called to be has already happened, and we can accept that at any point. We are called to be loved by God. We are called to be his children. We are called to be like Christ because we have his identity. And so, to summarize, we see, again, our, our first point was that we remove our sin habits and then put on our new identity in Christ. That secondly, we do this by taking a moral inventory of our heart. And thirdly, we are able to do this. We are able to put off our old self and put on Christ's identity because we are dearly loved children, because we are God's beloved. At the end of the last verse of our passage, chapter 5, verse 2, we're given the answer to the question, what does it mean to become like Christ? It says in verse 2 that we're to walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're simply called to walk in love. How did Christ walk in love? He gave his entire life to God as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. This is the gospel. This is Jesus dying on the cross for us, perfectly obedient to the Father, living out his love for us here on earth. And so for us to put our identity in Christ is to ultimately give our entire lives to God, that we too might be a fragrant offering and sacrifice. And this is what it means to put on our new self, to have Christ himself live and love others through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do love us so much with an immeasurable love that we can't contain, and yet this, these sin habits, this sin residue comes creeping into our life each day. We know it, and we hate it. It burdens us, it overwhelms us, it causes strife, it causes separation of relationships, Um, It causes much pain. And so, um, God, we can only open to you in this. And um, God, ask that we would be able to experience your love in such a way that um, your healing touch might be able to let us live out our new identity in Christ. And so I just pray for each person here, God, that um, especially even now in this last um, response song, that they can just um, sit with your love for them um, and be able to recognize, God, that they do have a new identity. And so we just thank you so much, and we just um, pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.